Our global yoga community means the world to us. And during these uncertain times, it's important that we support each other now more than ever. So if you haven't already, please check out and support the COVID-19 Yoga Teachers and Studio Support Fund, which has been set up by the yoga mat company Lifeform, who have donated a whole month's worth of profits to get this fund going. And you can donate to support yoga teachers and studios in need right now. And you can nominate a teacher or studio in your local area to potentially receive an award from this fund. Now it's open to everyone, to anywhere in the world, and to find out more, please visit yogasupportfund.com. Welcome to Child's Pose, a yoga podcast hosted by me, Michael James Wong, teacher, author, and founder of Just Breathe, Boys of Yoga, and Sunday School Yoga. Now this podcast aims to deepen your understanding, expand your perspective, and inspire your yoga practice. As I speak to teachers, community leaders, experts, and also ordinary practitioners about the topics and techniques that have evolved and progressed over the years. From the evolution of alignment, to the joys of practicing at home and now online, to what yoga means to the next generation of teachers. My hope with this podcast is that I can share the wisdom from those early years through conversations with some of the pioneers of the practice, but also speak to the next generation of teachers who are doing their part to keep yoga relevant in the real world. So join me each week as we deepen our understanding, expand our perspective, inspire our practice, and discuss yoga. Past, present, and wherever it's going next. Child's Pose. Let's begin. Hey guys, on today's episode of Child's Pose, I am so honored to speak to Dave Stringer. Now, Dave Stringer is a Grammy-nominated record producer and composer, and he's one of the most innovative artists of the modern yoga movement. Dave himself is trained as a visual artist and a jazz musician, but in many ways he started as an outsider, becoming involved with chanting and mantra only when he was hired to make some films in India at an ashram, um, which I'm looking forward to talking to him about today. You know, he's continued to allow this outsider perspective really inform and enable the ways that he introduces chanting to the uninitiated and people who are brand new to this style of practice. You know, what I love about Dave is that he really lets his music and his art originate from the place of the heart, and he's deeply committed to the process of inquiry. I'm really looking forward to this episode. Thank you guys for joining us, and this is the interview and the time I spent with Dave. Hope you enjoy. Hey Dave, thank you so much for joining me today for a little chat on the podcast. And I think it's so nice because, you know, you and I have this kind of fond bond of running into each other all over the world every few months or years. So it's really nice to actually have a moment to chat and uh, and catch up. How are things? Things are surprisingly good. I think as a, as a yogi, I'm psychologically able to withdraw from from the drama of the world and sit with myself, which I realize a lot of people actually fundamentally have a problem doing. When you look at, at the big picture of things, like billions of, been, of people have been asked to 
sit down and sit by themselves and refrain from all the things that their minds usually connect to. And in some ways, we've all been asked to look inward. Um, and that, I think for a lot of people is uncomfortable. For me, um, I've made that journey a few times before. So uh, I'm navigating some familiar territory. Oh, that's great to hear. Now, you're over, obviously over in L.A. right now. I'm in London. And obviously, I find it's a beautiful time to, to connect and reconnect, especially across the world. And I, I always remember, and I always kind of remember quite fondly, you know, over the last, let's say, years and decades of this yoga community, you know, I've always been hugely inspired and uh, hugely uh, appreciative of every time not only I see you, but actually hear you and, you know, your, your name comes up and, and, you know, the offering that you do in the practice is, is such a beautiful and a powerful thing. I mean, I think most people listening to this will maybe know of you and your music and maybe some of your journey, but I thought uh, a nice way to drop into kind of this little chat is maybe if you would share just for, you know, those of us who maybe have forgotten or those of us who are a bit newer to, to the world of Dave, just you know, your world of, of yoga and mantra and music and, and kind of how it all kicked off and where you are now with it. Well, I'll start by saying that I'm, I'm a reluctant yogi in the sense that I'm not naturally a joiner. And um, anytime people make promises that if I engage in a certain practice that it's going to somehow revitalize, rejuvenate, otherwise completely revolutionize my interior self, I have one eyebrow raised about it. <laughs> um, that, <laughs> that said... Yoga is not asking us to believe in yoga. Yoga is asking us to practice yoga. And uh, that makes a huge difference for me in that uh, I've been able to progress uh, in my own practice, in my own life, by taking steps toward the actual experience of what happens. So is a historical way of, of looking at what happened. Um, I first encountered yoga in the late 1980s when I had a bad back and a friend of mine recommended I go take some classes with Anna Forrest, who um, is an amazing uh, teacher. She dispenses some very fierce medicine, but one of the things that I loved hearing from her was that my body was a kind of recorder of everything that had ever happened to me and that yoga was a practice by which I used my breath and my awareness to play back the tape, so to speak, but to try and watch it with the pain channel off or to figure out where that pain was and to investigate it and then pull back so that I could move through it without being somehow like caught up in it. That was super useful to me. It helped my back um, and it didn't actually change my stance on all things spiritual with regard to yoga until I was hired to go to India by a spiritual teacher there to go live in an ashram and make some videos for beginners about yoga practices. So that was the opening statement there in my, my, uh, my progress through things yoga. It was in India that I first encountered chanting and that changed the course and direction of where I was going and how I was getting there. So in short, um, they hired me because I was a beginner and they wanted me to essentially report on 
my experiences, you know, unfiltered and without any particular prior knowledge. So, um, so I worked very closely with a bunch of different swamis and people who had substantial experience with Eastern philosophy, and they didn't tell me anything except for after the fact. So the first time I experienced chanting was uh, really, I think, in a tent of about a thousand people chanting the mantra Om Namah Shivaya, which I had been told, oh, very, very great mantra, but nobody said why. <laughs> so I had to figure it out. And that process of inquiry, I think, is a thing that's driven me forward since then. This idea that yoga was something to be investigated, that it was an aid in my process of inquiry, uh, that I should filter everything through my experience, and that I should actually in some ways uh, let my doubt lead me, as opposed to my faith lead me, that, that that changed my perspective on things considerably. I, I always know Dave as as the musician and you know as the person who's leading such powerful chanting and kirtans and mantras and you know it's really nice to hear kind of humble beginnings of almost doubt and questioning and skepticism. I mean, is that just your nature of kind of you know being quite? Hmm, tell me more about this, or let 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 me see if this is kind of the way forward for me. Yeah, um, I think my nature is to ask questions. Uh, I, it was, since I was a little kid, you know, I was somehow obsessed with things like why why is there something <laughs> instead of nothing? You know, how how did this world arise? You know, what are what are thoughts and where do they come from and what happens to them and how 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 do those thoughts interact with the world? Those are are pretty yogic questions to ask. And so the interesting thing for me about encountering yoga philosophy was how looking in the rear view mirror that I had been asking those questions all along. So yoga philosophy gave me a lens by which I could sort of look at the progress of my life up to that point and, and, and begin to somehow make some sense of it. it. It meant that many of the things that I thought were mistakes uh, could be viewed instead as as fortuitous occurrences because they they led me to investigate this or that or they gave me a certain experience of myself and um, you know I think most of us often look at our lives with certain shudder of regret for things that we did there's ways we don't forgive ourselves for certain mistakes we made etc but yoga provides a kind of systemic way of resolving those things. Mm -hmm because it's not focused exactly on an end goal. I mean, despite all the many promises of, you know, enlightenment and chakra realignment and all these kinds of things that come across my inbox. What it's saying is that there's a process here. That process is not going to end. Um, and even if it does end for you, that you're still not done, that your, your, your dharma, your job, your work, at that point is then to assist others in releasing themselves. So, you know, so it continues. The thing that I found really powerful about chanting was um, the way that one, you could have an experience which was transformative and two, how that experience could ignite a similar experience in others. So it was like transmissible 
contagious to use a kind of loaded word these days. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. But I mean, when you were in India and you were experiencing that arguably for the first time, I mean, when, where and how did the journey get you to actually merging it with your music, you know, building it into kind of your lifestyle and actually making it, you know, it, it your, your dharma now? Well, okay, first of all, I was a musician since uh, I was a kid. You know, I think I, the first time I was moved to write a piece of music, I was probably five or six. Right. And so, but I had also been sort of, I don't know, I suppose hiding, like not taking the risk of putting it out there. Uh, the fact that I was a, a, a video editor was really itself a kind of dodge. It was a, a job that I had that that used my my aesthetic skills and my sense of rhythm and form that came from being a musician. And it was, you know, a way of getting a decent paycheck. Mm. Um, the truth was before I went to India, I was unhappy doing it because I was mostly working on commercials or really, really woefully, I don't know, misinformed documentary infotainment kind of stuff. It was paying me well. And yet, uh, the, and it was acquainting me with the illusion of the world (laughs) But it wasn't filling me or satisfying me, and I was mostly sitting in dark, over-air-conditioned rooms in Burbank, you know, being fed takeout Thai food and sure. <laughs> working yeah. you know, 16 hours a week. And um, so in, in avoiding taking the risk of putting my music out there, um, and I think that's maybe because aside from its purpose internally for me, I wasn't sure what it did for the world. But then I get to India, and uh, the funny thing is the thing that was, that was a dodge, meaning editing, actually was the thing that took me toward what, was, what actually changed things. When I was a kid, I made up songs with essentially nonsense lyrics, like in an invented language, um, but nobody could sing it back. And then I got to India, and I'm confronted with essentially a, what to me was a nonsense language, Sanskrit. And everybody was singing back. And the sound of it was really powerful to me. And it was something that we could all do together. And I got involved, you know, on a daily basis with a form of music that was purposefully uh, unifying and transformative. And that was a really powerful thing. And and I, I understood that music more than just a tool to investigate myself or transform my own feelings about myself in the world was something that could be used on a really like big level to pull community together and to change things up in really powerful ways, emotionally and spiritually for other people. Um, that was really interesting. And in the fact that I could sit and chant in, if no matter how, difficult a day I'd had, no matter how angry or full of, you know, I don't know, doubt or mistrust or whatever, is that in 15 minutes or so of singing in a group, I would feel better. I mean, somehow that, uh, whether I I wanted to get something out of it or not, whether I believed in yoga or not, uh, the practice of singing was powerful, powerfully transformative. And I could witness that occurring around me as well. Um, it was after I spent almost two years in India. It was only after that, that I came back to LA and became involved in what was really at that time, uh, 
particularly in the mid and then late 90s, uh, a really powerful time in the history of yoga. Uh, Santa Monica, California was becoming, I guess, sort of like the hate ashbury of the yoga movement. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and I had sort of a ringside seat to it. I don't think anybody really knew what was exactly happening. It was just happening. And, but for the first time, people were gathering together, not around some particular spiritual teacher, but around the practice of yoga as a systematic philosophy involving, you know, asana and movement and meditation and pranayama, but also community gatherings in which dance and, uh, and singing were being integrated as part of the bigger movement. So yoga studios became cultural and community centers and I was asked to start leading kirtans. I didn't really was doing it around spiritual circles, but it was when Yoga Works in uh, in Santa Monica asked me, I think in 1997, right, uh, if I would lead kirtans for the first time. That's when it all started to happen. And there's a woman who's passed this past year, unfortunately, Mati Azrati, mm-hmm. who um, I don't know if she's really widely known, but she should be. She is. Yeah. I'd say speaking for this side of the world, I mean, she's very, very widely known and, and, and well-loved. Yeah. Um, I, I found that, you know, people who have started practicing recently may not know who she is. So I'll just a brief explanation is that she uh, is one of the founders, along with her ex-partner, uh, Chuck Miller and uh, Lisa Walford and a few other people, of Yoga Works, which has since become a corporate chain, but at the time, what they were trying to do was resolve a lot of different yoga styles and practices into a kind of unified community in which you could experience yoga in a lot of different styles. And she developed teacher trainings, uh, which really helped transmit that, you know, really widely. A lot of people who studied there went and opened up yoga studios like all over the country and all over the world. Um, and, uh, she saw Kirtan as being a really important part of, uh, of the community coming together. She was also beginning to market, uh, yoga teachers like movie stars. And that's actually how people like Sean Korn or Shiva Ray or Brian Kest, Rod Stryker and other people, you know, first came to prominence. But at the time, you know, when... Uh, this was happening. Nobody was particularly famous. And this idea that people would go and teach workshops around the world was really a fairly new idea. So what happened to me is that first I became the house band at Yoga Works and I met all these people. And then they started taking me with them to play music for their workshops. And um, Saul Ray and Sean Korn and Shiva Ray particularly did this. I also did a bunch of, you know, yoga teacher training things with Brian Keston. Right. And, uh, and I played for everybody who came through. So because of that, I played for Patabi Joyce. I played for, you know, any number of different teachers and uh, was exposed to a much, much wider stream of, of yoga thought than I'd gotten even in the ashram in India. And found myself traveling and needing to find musicians in different cities and often, you know, learning how to play music to accompany a yoga class and then having kirtan events in which we gather people together to sing. So it kind of turned into a tour and one thing led to another. And first it was all around California and then it was all around the United States and then it was all around North America and then 
Europe and then Australia and China and, you know, it just kept on going. Yeah. And now it's everywhere, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's a funny thing to realize that in just the space of really 20, 25 years, yoga went from kind of a niche thing to a truly global community. Mm. And that's an amazing thing. It's one of the things that, you know, during the current state of lockdown, it's it's almost uh it's just a little bittersweet to reflect on. I guess I'm just as connected to this whole world as I was before. I mean, that's one reason why we're we're talking right now. And yet at the same time, we really can't really travel, we can't really gather together. And um so many of the things that really were so nourishing about this community, like we we can only engage in them in a kind of virtual way right now. And uh, I'm not sure what implications that has for the future. It's just it's made me, I think, um, realize that I'd almost reached a point of taking that for granted. Yeah. You know, and now it seems like, oh, wow, uh, the next time I can be with a crowd of people singing or practicing yoga, then I'll, I'll never take that for granted again. This podcast is part of Sunday School Yoga, an international teacher's community, an online teacher training platform, supporting new and developing teachers as they learn, share, and grow together. So make sure you check out sundayschoolyoga.com to find out more about how to get involved and to explore the growing selection of online courses you can enroll in from anywhere in the world. like this practice has been a beautiful preparation for this um i mean and i know you said that kind of on the way into this conversation but i really feel that and even in that sense i mean i live in london now i'm originally from santa monica so i you know i grew up in santa monica in the late 80s and 90s i mean i i I mean i probably didn't uh, i'm trying to think back i think i took my first yoga class maybe 98 99 um and i was kind of early in, you know, for me, it was Santa Monica Power Yoga and Yoga Works and City Yoga out in Fairfax Avenue right. in West LA. And, you know, so I have these really fond memories of these teachers of, um, you know, I don't think I, I'm racking my brain. I don't think I ever was lucky enough to sit into one of your classes or sessions in those early years. But, you know, it's these, these fond memories of kind of tracking back to those early moments and seeing how those early moments of inspiration, those teachers musicians, you know, people in that community have now essentially taken yoga worldwide in a really beautiful way. And I've had this moment now being here kind of at home in London where, you know, I mean, probably you and I are very similar where let, let's say 20 to 30 times a year, we're somewhere else in the world yeah. to actually be in one place for gone 10 weeks going, you know what? I think the yoga is working. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. It, it, it seems, uh, I think the first time I ever sat for a, a silent meditation retreat, I thought, this is crazy. Why am I doing this? But my actual reason for doing it, I mean, outside of ashram in India in the 90s, um, is uh, I had become exhausted from traveling and, uh, and I really love it. And then there's a certain point when you just come home and you're like, wow, I'm just spent. I, I need to 
go back to the well. And I remember sitting for a 10-day silent meditation retreat and um, sitting with myself in my mind, you know, the first like three days of it is really excruciating. And uh, then there's a certain point when suddenly the silence becomes a gift and you realize you don't have to like invent yourself every day. You don't have to like say who you are or what you want. You don't have to have any agenda and you realize how much effort we put into making that happen. And all of a sudden little things that you don't notice suddenly become things of like indescribable beauty. And, uh, and you start to notice just all, all sorts of things that you didn't before. But at the end of the, the meditation retreat, I, I, I realized, you know, uh, my mind wasn't exactly silent. You know, I, I, um, I was making up stories about everybody around me, you know, based upon like that hat that they wore, or, you know, uh, how they, how much brown sugar they put in their oatmeal, you know, for breakfast. Yep. It was like I was observing everything. Then finally at the end, you get to talk. And uh, I realized that I was 100% wrong about everybody and that they were 100% wrong about me too. We were all wrong. We were all inventing a world based upon some little clues. You know, our brains are just trying to connect things together to create meaning or make some sense of the whole thing. But we were wrong. And that was a really, really an amazing moment for me when I was like, wow, we're, we're, we're all inventing this world together. And so if we're going to do that, then how are we going to invent it? You know, uh, are we going to invent this world based upon our fears and project that? Are we going to in, invent this world based upon other principles like, oh, say, compassion or a sense of how things are going to play out over the long term? You know, there's a lot of ways to look at it. But to sit in silence is something I'm not really afraid of anymore. Mm. Um, because once you have that experience of staring yourself down and realizing that, you know, all by yourself, you're uh, creating reasons to be happy or sad, you know? And this wasn't really the first time after I came back from all that time in India, I spent um, three months alone in a house by a lake uh, that my family owned. And uh, I wasn't sure how to reintegrate back from India and return to, you know, Hollywood. And uh, so I spent three months by myself basically writing. And uh, I wrote a lot of the songs then that actually became my first record during that period of time. But I realized that uh, I was angry some days and there was nobody there to make me angry. Mm -hmm. I was sad some days and there was nobody there to make me sad that somehow my mind was creating all this, all these fluctuations that are going on inside of me were actually deeply responsible for what I was experiencing. And I'd spent most of my life blaming other people. So that was a big realization that came from yoga as well. Mm. Can I ask you a question about that though, Dave? Sure. Yeah. So when you had these moments when you were sitting and the mind became sad or frustrated or angry, the music, was that almost a result of those sensations or did music and mantra and chanting almost help create those sensations? I mean, where, where does that slide into this, this kind yeah. of well, yeah, like where does story it, of narrative for you? Yeah. Where does it start? Well, what I found is that the music was like erupting anyway, you know, and uh, I don't, it's, that's one of the great mysteries. Uh, my wife, Dervla Kelly, who's also a yoga teacher, 
lives with a musician, but still can't quite comprehend how it is that I come up with songs, you know, like, where does that come from? And, um, you know, I, I sometimes have the experience of just sitting beside some huge, uh, like endlessly bubbling, you know, like spring or something. And sometimes I happen to catch something that comes up all the really great kirtans that I've written, like a rose in about two minutes right they were just suddenly there but i I went and and they just like almost kind of complete in themselves uh like like they were natural somehow facts of the universe and that i had just found them but an interesting thing is is that then when i would start to play them for people i had to let go of like what i thought it was and and surrender to a bigger intelligence so i would sing something out and then people would sing it back different. And I'd be like, no, 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 it goes like this. And people would sing it back still in another way. And I had to realize that what I was trying to get to as an artist was something that expressed our, our collective consciousness in a way. Yeah. And that uh, the way that it went was the way the crowd sang it back, that that's what it was. And that I was making a journey from like what I heard and what I felt to what we feel. And that's a big move to make as an artist. So it's almost like uh, that acceptance that your music is just the spark or just the point right. of, of, of right. ignition. Yeah, I'm not a performer in at least in the Sanskrit, you know, realm as much as I'm a facilitator of an experience. I mean, I also have, you know, have been writing, I guess I won't call them conventional songs, but they're philosophical inquiries in English, which getting ready to release a new record of them in the next few months. But amazing. But but I'm known mostly for, you know, that's I call that commentary. Uh, but I'm known, you know, for chanting in Sanskrit ecstatically and moving people through an experience first of like deep stillness to like uh, celebratory ecstasy that uh, feels kind of like, you know, gospel meets india meets rock and roll meets jazz you know and um and i mean and and i will say firsthand i mean they're amazing i I also remember thank you and i'll I'll track you back to i mean this is what stockholm three years ago maybe Mm -hmm. where you were there and you were leading a what was it a a rock and roll kirtan karaoke do you remember this yeah something like there was something like this but i mean i i what I really loved was this sensibility to almost, and I say this lovingly, take it off the pedestal and make it accessible for everyone yeah. and, and welcome people in on any level because it can be quite daunting if you've never sat into a kirtan or you're kind of sitting into a, a session where there's a hundred or arguably 300 people chanting and you kind of feel a bit back against the wall, what's going on. I mean, right. I mean, for people listening who are maybe newer to this, I mean, what what actually takes place in a session when you're kind of leading a, a session like this? Okay, so there's two ways of looking at this. You know, one is like there's what's happening outer and what's happening inner. So I guess let's start with the outer here. Um, it, on a simple level, kirtan is a form in which uh, a leader and our little band with the leader like call out a phrase. And it's usually quite simple and quite catchy you know they're like little hooks it's pop song 101 in the sense um because they're meant to like be little earworms that stick in your mind and then the crowd sings it back and then that phrase is repeated by the leader and then it's again 
comes back from the crowd. And most kirtans will have two or three different parts. They're fairly uh, easy to learn right away. But in what's happening at the beginning is we're singing it really slowly. And we're all really singing it together. So a kind of uh, group experience starts to coalesce in part because everybody's breathing together and everybody's linking up and singing together. Over time, the, the rhythm accelerates. And so the song gets more and more compressed. So it goes faster and faster and faster and faster and faster until often people are clapping and dancing and um, and it gets really, really fast. And then we cut it in half and then the beat in half. And then suddenly there's a big, huge space and the groove gets really, really deep. And then people often fall into a kind of amazing silence that's somehow still very active. Like you feel really, really, really present and really, really, really aware and also really, really calm and also really, really connected to the people around you. So in uh, an evening of Kirtan, we'll go through a series of pulses like that. Usually with each peak getting higher and higher and each descent into meditation, uh, you know, deeper and deeper. I try and uh, in my comments about introducing the mantra, um, try and talk about its, I guess, psychological metaphors. Uh, because often you're singing different names of, of, of Hindu deities. And my take on it is that they're representative of psychological processes and the way that we respond to the world and to love itself. And so they're useful as, as, uh, as metaphors uh, to examine ourselves and our world. But once you start singing it, you're, you know, we're singing this kind of beautiful nonsense that itself is is meaningful um, because of its sound. You know, the first mantra that I ever learned was Om Namah Shivaya, and this is with a thousand people in a tent in India. And they didn't tell me what it meant, but I, as I listened to it, I realized that oh is a sound of like wonder and openness, and mmm feels really close and, and comforting and soothing. That ah is a sound of relief, and shh is a sound of silence. And E feels free and V feels exciting and vibratory. And I was like, oh, the mantra means all those things together. And then when later someone explained it to me, Om Namah Shivaya is really a mantra of relinquishment about how things break down and then come back together again. And it points us toward this idea of witnessing all the changes in the world from a point of stillness and welcoming what comes and allowing, you know, what goes and that was somehow encapsulated in the sound.
So I try and make it easy for people to sing. Um, I, I do tend to try and look at all this stuff with a certain sense of humor. And I'm basically trying to direct this toward people that maybe got dragged in and are like, oh my God, I told my girlfriend that I would come and chant with her yeah, and she is going to go to the football game with me. So like, you know, okay, fair is fair. But so I'm trying to sit in my own place, you know, remember my own place of doubt and resistance and address other people with that sense of awareness, you know, and invite them in. So, you know, we go through a series of pulses about this and, uh, and it's, it's very, very ecstatic. And it's also very, very moving in the sense of the stillness that it creates and the way people feel connected afterwards. You know, you'll see complete strangers, you know, just like hug each other after a chant because they feel like they've just engaged in something really, really intimate with one another. There's almost a, it's almost like we've all just made love to one another and yeah. uh, <laughs> so it's almost you know. like we, we've woven and you know we've woven the connection of humanity and kind of brought us all back yeah. to kind of a basic level of just being you know connected in some way yeah well and yeah and when you think about it it's like well what is this for what's it what's it good for you know you know then when you start to look at it on a kind of scientific or neuroscientific level first of all all humans all human societies are musical Maybe there were human societies that existed that weren't musical, um, but they didn't really survive because music allows us to, one, uh, transmit emotion to one another in ways where you can say, oh, yeah, I feel that too. But most importantly, it helps us synchronize ourselves and, and move uh, in with a single, with, a, with a, a united identity toward a common purpose. So from a, a sort of like tribal perspective, uh, music is very unifying in terms of bringing groups of people together. And it, it helps us synchronize and engage ultimately in all manner of activities that we have to cooperate for. Um, so music has an evolutionary purpose that's really, really, really central to human activity, which is why one thing that's really weird right now is that we probably need at no more time, you know, I mean, no other, like no other time to actually get together and engage in like singing and dancing together. And yet it's the most dangerous thing that we could do from a pandemic perspective. It's the paradox is super weird. But the thing is, is that neurologically what's happening is that we breathe together at first to sing slowly. Everybody has to take an in-breath at the same time and sing together. So it's a natural form of pranayama. And what happens is that we initiate ecstatic experience first by modifying our breathing. And um, on a brainwave level, uh, taking those deep breaths begins a transition from beta waves, which are attentive, uh, to alpha waves, which are more deeply reflective, and ultimately theta waves, which have, once we enter that state, it, it appears to initiate a different kind of conversation in the different um, structures in our brain. Like it allows a kind of rewiring or different parts to talk to one another that don't normally talk to one another. Simultaneously, the deep breathing initiates a parasympathetic nervous response, which is our relaxation response. The repetitions and the steady groove as it speeds up stimulates our sympathetic nervous system, our excitation response. And even though they normally exist, you know, kind of one kicks in and then the other balances, you know, we get 
excited and then we have to chill out and then it's too boring. So then we need more excitement. Music causes these things to fire simultaneously. So the autonomic nervous system is firing both a relaxation and an excitation response simultaneously, which is something that feels really, really good. And the other human activity that frequently does that is sex. So to call chanting group sex is not really that big of a stretch because some of the same neurological mechanisms are operating. At the same time, uh, the brain first is releasing, you know, uh, norepinephrine and dopamine, which are involved with our sense of rewards and pleasure. That's ultimately followed by endorphins, which release, which uh, relieve pain, a non-demide, which creates a, a feeling of ecstatic bliss, followed by serotonin, uh, which allows us to kind of rewire our brains in a lot of ways. Um, serotonin receptors are often implicated in experience, psychedelic experiences, like when people take mushrooms or LSD, and ultimately oxytocin, which bonds us together. And, you know, in a sense, it's kind of the love molecule. So, so our brain begins this whole sort of symphonic composition of neuro neurological changes, whether different neurotransmitters are happening or whether the autonomic nervous system is firing in certain ways. All these things produce a feeling of like peace, well-being, intense presence in the moment, connection to one another. It's a, it's, it's a powerful practice when you start to look at it. And, um, you know, actually yoga asana does this too. When people are even without music, when people are, are practicing together, particularly vigorous vinyasas, um, some of the same responses occur. I think that's really amazing. And I think one of the, yeah, I think right now in this kind of, and I, and I kind of call maybe this, let's call this the transitional generation between kind of the, you know, the, those early first generation teachers, which obviously I'd put you in that, that conversation of to kind of where we are moving towards and the next generation of teachers is, is this awakening to realize that the practice, the holistic appreciation of the practice is moving beyond asana. And I think it's people like yourself, moments when people get to experience kirtan at this level of depth that we can actually see this, this huge project progress towards really appreciating, you know, different styles and aspects and uh, environments of the practice that take us so much further or in a completely different direction. I think there's, you know, I, I would love to say that, and I hope you would be okay with this, to say that you were part of that kind of first pioneer group of really bringing bhakti into a more common conversation maybe amidst let's call it western power yogis maybe dare i say yeah i suppose although it's funny because i also i always felt i've always felt a little bit outside of a certain bhakti mainstream in the sense that i've been interested in chanting almost from a sort of secular or psychological uh, point of view as opposed to a religious point of view. Mm. Like I've never really felt that yoga was, you know, was the new religion. I always felt that actually it, it was part of finding something like authentic spiritual experience apart from dogma or belief systems. And that, um, in its way, it was, it was, 
had the capacity of annihilating conventional religion. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've sometimes found myself a little uncomfortable around the bhakti scene because I feel like a lot of people were uh, putting a lot of focus on a particular teacher or um, engaging in certain kinds of, I, I don't know, I guess what I would call magical thinking. And, you know, I hear the word bhakti a lot, and I'm not sure that I use it in the way that other people do. You know, it's said to mean devotion, but then, you know, you have to ask this question, to who or to what, you know? Am I devoted toward a practice of self-inquiry? Yes. Am I devoted toward uh, engaging in actions which uh, create benefit for others? Yes. Am I devoted toward uh, cultivating the experience of uh, ecstatic awareness and, and profound compassion in myself? Yes, I am. Um, am I devoted to Krishna or Shiva or a particular guru? No, I'm not. I remember early on, uh, I was chanting at a yoga conference and there was this other Kirtan singer there, Bhagavan Das, who is one of the original gangsters of, you know, of Kirtan. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't put myself in the first generation, actually. I mean, I, I went to India in the 90s, okay? I mean, Bhagavan Das was there in the 60s, okay? So, you know, there's an age difference and an experience difference. But, um, you know, I was giving some of my explanations for, you know, um, what we're doing and why we do it. And uh, Bhagavan Das said, you know, uh, I don't know who that, that guy doesn't, apparently doesn't believe in God. I don't know who he's chanting to. And my response was, I'm not chanting to. I'm, I'm not... Uh, trying to reach out to some unreachable God in some far heaven that we have never been able to locate. I'm trying to erase any sense of distance or difference between myself and source. It's, it's a rather different mm. action. It's possible to sing with great devotion to Krishna or Christ or your boyfriend or girlfriend or, you know, whoever, but um, to me, there's what I'm not doing is I'm, I'm I guess I, if I'm reaching out, I'm reaching out by reaching in. OK, that trying to touch that place in myself that's so resonant and connected that it, it ripples outward. And, and so that's really what I'm engaged in when I'm chanting. And it's the act of doing it and not the words per se or the image as I started to investigate this stuff neurologically too, there's, um, to try and sum it up in as few sentences as possible, there is a part of our brain, the occipital parietal lobe, which is associated with our body's image and where our body ends and the world begins. It creates a kind of illusion because if you look at everybody molecularly, like if you could look at yourself under an electron microscope, you'd see that you're really a cloud, Yeah, you know? And um, that there's hydrogen and nitrogen and oxygen molecules moving around all over the place, but your body sees, sees that you have a hard limit. When we chant, that part of our brain becomes deafferentated. I mean, it actually becomes deprived of information, and so it, it, it slows down. The blood flows away from it. And um, uh, so you have a feeling that the boundaries of your body actually kind of dissolve. Um, and that's, it's not an illusion. It's as, or I'll put it this way. It's as real as anything else that your brain creates. Right. So the sense of separation and illusion are both real. 
you know, which is still a thing to get my head around. It's like, okay, as a yogi, I have to trans, I have to transverse all these different realities and somehow <laughs> see them all. Yeah. Together. I mean, that's a big statement, isn't it? Right. Yeah. It's crazy. But, um, but in this process, so think of it as I'm way oversimplifying, but the left hemisphere of the occipital parietal lobe uh, is essentially creating a signal, like call it I am, okay? And the right is contextual and we'll call it here, okay? So I am here is a, is a statement that's made possible by the coordinated action of two hemispheres of your brain. When you chant in a bhakti way, um, meaning that you are singing to Krishna, for example, all the blood flow is going to the here part of it. And uh, in extreme cases, uh, you're focused so much on an object that the sense of I am disappears, like that part of the brain becomes deafferentated. And you have the experience of merging into the beloved, which is what so much bhakti poetry is about. Sure. And, and so much of what the bhakti movement is trying to do is. And, and that's a beautiful, beautiful thing to have this feeling of merger. But there is also another way that the brain can deal with this. These are, you can think of these as different approaches to meditation. There's another one in which you steadily remove your identification with objects and contexts. And as the mind turns in on itself, the sense of, of, of both I am and here disappear. So suddenly you can fall into a place of like, no, no self, no world. That's neurologically a, a different experience in the sense that both hemispheres are quieted, where in bhakti meditation, one is extremely uh, uh, lit up and the other goes quiet. So they're neurologically different experiences. I tend, I think by temperament, to be more inclined to the latter as opposed to the former. Um, I'm not saying that one is better or another. I mean, one you could call you know, loosely call it Hindu meditation and the other Buddhist meditation. And, uh, I, I think on, if I had to characterize myself, I'm, I'm probably more, uh, inclined philosophically to Buddhism than to Hinduism. But like, I don't know, the Hindus know how to party. <laughs> it's, yeah. like, it's more That's fun. Point. But, I mean, it's what, what, fun. what I really enjoy, and obviously the times that that we've had some time together, and the times where I've had friends and students kind of kind of sit into your workshops and sessions, is is that you actually take the time to give people context. I mean, and appreciating that they do, you know, that there is an intellectual mind that begs questions, and then you actually give choices rather than just saying, "This is the mantra." We are chanting to Krishna. We have a single-minded objective. You kind of open doors for people to actually appreciate the context for themselves. Oh, thanks. And, and, I, and, I, and I say that with an appreciation because I, I hearing all of this now, I, I, it's, you know, I know you do it very intentionally. I know you do it to be very welcoming, to give people a sense of, you know, their own, you know, and we talk about bhakti in the sense of devotion, but, you know, maybe a... Uh, maybe a reframe could be just this sense of celebration of connection and allowing people to appreciate what that means for themselves, given yeah. options on the table. Because I know for, I mean, even the first times I, I went to a kirtan and those type of things, you know, there's or even just the first time you go to a yoga class and someone says, you know, at the end, we're going to say namaste. At the end, we're going to do an om. That You know, for an intellectual mind or a skeptical mind, there's nothing more 
triggering than being asked to do something where you don't get any context and you're asked to believe in something or almost you know um, abide by something without anyone going and this is why and I, I love that you give it up front oh thanks I think you know part of that comes back to say some of my my elemental or fundamental issues that I, I had with uh, systematized spirituality in the first place you know um, I remember as a child uh, in in a, a Christian church basically being told that I was fundamentally bad and that I needed to uh, uh, be a Christian in order to become good and and that didn't square with my internal experience. I mean, I think I'm probably more articulate about it now than I was when I was five, but, um, but, <laughs> but, <hope> uh, so. <laughs> but, but I still had a sense that inwardly that I was good and that, that we all were, and that there were things and challenges in our lives that, that caused us to feel bad or to make mistakes, but that that wasn't a flaw in our essential nature. And I, and I didn't like being told that I, I had to do this in order to, you know, somehow recover from something I'm not sure that I needed to recover from. And, um, so uh, I think all I'm, all I'm doing is, is inviting people to practice yoga, which is to engage in a process of, of, um, of discrimination in the sense of, of being able to look at things clearly, even whether that's your resistance, you know, I'm trying to allow for that. I, I want, I want people to understand that there's a process here that sometimes moves in, 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 in fits and starts and, and sometimes even involves retrograde motion. You know, um, you can be making a lot of progress and then all of a sudden, you know, almost like, go backwards, you know, and, uh, and that that's also part of what's going on here. You know, how are we going to stay with it? Because we keep, you know, putting what people or practices on a pedestal and then they fail to meet our expectations. And so then what we discredit the whole thing. I remember having a, uh, an experience once with, uh, I spent a number of years on the road with, um, John Friend, the former yeah. founder of Anusara. Um, and, you know, there were a lot of benefits from that community and the practice. And there were also, you know, various delusions. Um, I met John ages ago in the ashram in, in India. And so I always kind of have a relationship with him from the standpoint of like, you know, I used to wash dishes with the guy. And so it was interesting to kind of be on the road with him and, you know, be on stage and sort of be the guy who did the, you know, bada bing, you know, after he told a joke and, you know, like that sort of thing. Um, but, um, I know, uh, I feel like you're not giving yourself enough credit there on that one. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I don't know, but I mean, you know, I definitely had to hold that space and, you know, you also had to practice with John every day, which was like, you know, yeah. And the guy had incredible energy, incredible insight, but, um, I remember him asking me to introduce a, a, a Ganesh uh, mantra and a, a, a typical way of introducing the Ganesh mantra is to say that, you know, uh, Ganesh represents our obstacles and, and how we move through them. And, you know, I would often say uh, in yoga, the obstacle is, is, is the teacher, you know, and that we have to learn to value our obstacles and, and see how they can teach us. And, you know, that's all true and well 
and good. But I turned to John and I don't know how this happened, but just like with full confidence, I said, you know, John in yoga, the teacher is the obstacle. And there was like this long pause in the room, you know, cause there were like, yeah. like two, 300 people there or something like that. And he was like, can you say that again? You know, thinking I would correct myself. And I was like, well, you know, like in jazz, if you make a mistake, you know, they say, make it again. Yeah. Do it again. You know? <laughs> and it becomes a thing. So I looked at him and I said, you know, John in yoga, the teacher is the obstacle. And he took a deep breath and he was like, Oh man, like he's throwing it at me. I'm going to have to deal with it. And you know, it's funny cause it's sort of ironic cause later, you know, the cult of John caused some problems for him and for other people, but he did pick up the ball and he said, yeah, you know, in yoga, when we, when we put all of our attention and all of our focus on a teacher, we, we rob ourselves of the possibility that that teacher is really within us. We give our power away. And yet yoga is about actually finding the authentic source of our own power. You know, we should always question our teachers. We should always question our methods. We should always be asking, is that so? Is that so? And it was a really beautiful answer to a, a kind of, you know, accidental challenge. So I realized, oh, okay, what can I model for people? I can model being a person who's in process, uh, who can admit that uh, he's wrong sometimes, can admit that despite all the yoga and all the chanting and everything like that, that I get mad, I get confused, I get tired, I get anxious. You know, all these things still are happening. And yet I know I can use these practices to, you know, kind of reset myself. And maybe the longer you do them, uh, the more it's in your life. Sometimes the reset happens really quickly. Mm. And, and I'm grateful for that. You know, even if I can just get back, you know, uh, if I can transit from being angry to, you know, feeling connected and calm and compassionate again, if it used to take me 15 minutes and now I can do it in five. Yeah. We've, you know, we've made some progress here. See, and, and that's, what's really beautiful, not just about the, the chanting, but also the experience of the music and people coming together. I mean, can I ask you this though? Now, I mean, obviously in this unique time where everyone is at a bit of a distance or if, you know, people are newly teaching or they're just kind of 
let's say, entering this wider world of, of yoga, I mean, where can we get started in all this? I mean, is there is there a way to practice right now? Well, that's it's an interesting question because right now yogis, even though we're psychologically in many ways equipped to, you know, relinquish the old and embrace the new, we're having to suddenly make a huge transition because I'm not frankly sure when yoga studios are going to be able to open again. Um, I've talked to some friends in, um, in Shanghai and Beijing where they're a little bit ahead of, you know, the curve, the way we're experiencing it in Europe and America is that there are some yoga studios open now, but really only for private instruction or, you know, there, you can have five students and there has to be a certain distance and people are wearing masks. And, you know, when you look at that, the, the economic model of that is challenging and uh, so it's going to be a while before big yoga conferences uh, or even just regular classes with lots of people are, are going to be available to us. And from what I've read, you know, one of the fastest ways to you know spread the virus is singing. You know, there was a case, you know, here early on in the progress of this. I think there was a choir, 50, 60 people in, in Washington State. Uh, and one person was infected and infected everybody else in, in the course of a choir rehearsal. So I'm not sure how that's going to play out in terms of like the, like yoga's, you know, emphasis on, on, on the group context. So we're all having to reimagine this. Um, I think maybe there are many yoga studios that won't reopen. Many people are teaching online now and, you know, there's something something to be gained and something lost from it. I mean, nobody's getting any adjustments online. Sure. Um, <laughs> and, and people are, you know, on the other hand, uh, people are able to study with all kinds of yoga teachers that they've never been able to study with before. They're able to do it, you know, I guess in the privacy of their own home, which on the one hand is is great. On the other hand, it's not so great. You know, if you've got kids, they might not really leave you alone while you're practicing. Sometimes going to a yoga studio, you know, was, was a way of stepping out of your normal routine and into like the world of your practice. And that that threshold, that transition was super important from a musical standpoint. Um, I'm having to look at chanting differently because of uh, bandwidth issues and the issue of delay in a signal um, as it bounces around the, the world. It's not possible to really play in sync even with other musicians um, right. over Zoom. And so everybody's doing these solo performances. And, and even if I would listen to people chanting back in Zoom, they would be singing, from my perspective, out of sync with me. And so that's very challenging. So I can see them, but I can't hear them. And I'm having to look at this differently. Um, and people have told me, like, I've started saying, okay, I'm going to, you know, do a chant and here's, here's the music, you know, put that up on Facebook and I'm inviting people to play along with me. Um, so I'm inviting people to chant with me at home uh, in a much more intimate experience in which as opposed to this mass transformation thing, what I can do instead is engage actually apparently very intimately with people. And it's, 
uh, it's beautiful and it's weird because I, I, people write me and say, wow, that was really great. You left room for me to respond. You know, you showed me how to even just hold a drone on a harmonium or play one simple chord on a guitar or whatever. And I felt like I, you, I was in a living room with you and it was just the two of us singing together. And that's a beautiful experience that I wasn't, that people weren't having with me before. But of course, it's strangely one way. Part of what made Kirtan or makes Kirtan so juicy for me is I'm responding to what's coming back. You know, I put it out and then it comes back to me and the crowd changes it and shifts its course. So I'm engaged in Kirtan in a dynamic responsory thing with people. It's it's a little weird to realize that what I have to do now is rely on my experience and memory of what leading really thousands and thousands of kirtans is like. And I have to hold that space from memory so that then people can respond to me in a way that's like live and real for them. So it becomes even more an act of service on my part. I know that there are many people out there that are, you know, isolating alone um, or maybe there's a few people around them, family or whatever, but there's, there's precious little time that's really just for them. Or if you are alone, a lot of the time, this ability to connect with others in a meaningful and profound way is really precious. So whether that's practicing asana or chanting, I, I think that in some ways we're, we are serving people in terms of creating a connection and a transformative event, but it's different. And uh, it's something I think that all of us are having to learn how to uh, navigate and master. Uh, it comes to mind, I remember being in film school, they were talking about the history of how actors made a transition from the stage to the screen. On the stage, you make big gestures because they have to be seen and felt by people, you know, up in the balcony. Um, and yet on the screen, because the camera can get so close, you know, just raising an eyebrow can have really profound implications. So we as yogis are having to now master a different medium. It's as if we're moving, well, we're moving from the stage quite literally to the screen. And um, how's that going to work? I don't know that it can replace the experience of, you know, being in a hall uh, with, you know, 500 people all practicing together or singing together. It just becomes something different. Yeah. But I don't think it will replace it. I don't think it needs to. Yeah. And I think a, a beautiful reflection of this moment is that, you know, if we can hold within our heart or belief that it is just for a moment of now and not forever i really love what you said of, of taking it back to this this kind of selflessness of the service of a teacher and and using this time to to be of support to be empathetic to be out there as a teacher a facilitator as someone who is showing up in in ways that we might never thought were relevant or necessary six months ago but for so many people can be profoundly impactful and you might not even have any uh, receival of, 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 that, of that impact. You might not be able to get any feedback 
you might not hear anything about how you know impactful it was but we know that putting it out there and turning into you know uh, a unique offering for a moment actually can be of of the service of the teacher right now yeah that's a, a really important point to make and you know we are taught in yoga that selfless service is really kind of the essence of it all and now we have this opportunity that without any particular feedback we have to look at what we do as service and it is helpful listeners to occasionally hear from people like, sure, of wow that really <laughs> that really moved me or thank you so much but yeah we have to put it out without acknowledgement uh and without feedback and um that that presents new challenges and opportunities for for people who are teaching but probably uh it also emphasizes how important this is and and how transformative it could be that uh you know have days of optimism and days of realism but um could be that we are witnessing and participating in one of the most singularly transformative events in human consciousness ever right now yeah absolutely and we're challenged both to navigate it and figure out what we're going to do with it and you know some days you know i feel like okay well all of our bad habits are coming to you know to fruition now and you know, we'll just go the way of the dinosaurs. It's just, you know, we've been <laughs> clobbered by a different kind of asteroid. And, uh, but on the other hand, we have the opportunity now to substantially reinvent our culture and our politics and, um, and our, our relationships to one another. And um, I, 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 I feel kind of deeply that, uh, that, if we want to make something good of this, we will. That itself is this, it's affected us from the standpoint of consciousness in a mass way, in a way that few events have actually ever done that. When you think about it, it's like everybody's kind of experiencing something of the same thing. We're all focused on the same thing. That's transformative. Uh, it has profound implications for where we're going to go spiritually, everything from our relationship to, you know, what we see as the divine or our place in the universe to how we are going to respond to one another and take care of our various needs, how we're going to exist within the environment that we live in and with all the other forms of life that we share this planet with. Um, it's all up for grabs right now. And uh, I'd like to think that yoga and yoga practices are part of the discussion and part of uh, the awareness uh, that can help us make this transformation. I've been to all kinds of, you know, new agey things where people are all, you know, talking about feeling the shift and, you know, <laughs> being galactivated or something, you know. Nobody expected that a shift would come this way. But, you know, short of an asteroid suddenly bearing down on us, this is pretty close to yeah. creating a transformative opportunity for all of humanity. And yeah. I think we should welcome it. And, and I think that, I mean, that really is uh, such a, uh, a beautifully profound thought. And I think the opportunity at hand is, is just that. And I, I think, you know, I, I really believe, you know, the practice of yoga, conversations like these, a willingness for self-awareness, 
discrimination, exploration, you know, all these types of things where we've been gifted upon the journey of yoga right now where we are, let's say, right in the midst of the deepest opportunity within the practice is to see how we can grow from it and take it forward with with really, um, you know, huge benefits to, 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 to everyone. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. I mean, Dave, it, it's been a really um, beautiful chat, and I, I thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure, Michael. Yeah, I mean, one question I, I did have for you, which just is kind of the way that we have been kind of wrapping up these conversations, is when all is said and done for you as, you know, a musician, a facilitator, a teacher, a yogi, I mean, what what do you want your, you know, what what is the Dave Stringer legacy? I mean, what what do you want to leave behind? I guess I I hope that people would remember me for um, bringing people together. Um, I hope that people would remember me for being of assistance in transmuting our sorrow into joy, to celebrating and contemplating our existence. I hope that uh, the art that I've made has contributed to our sense of wonder and joy and uh, purpose and meaning. I think that uh, no practice or no individual does that alone. I, I hope that uh, I can be remembered as somebody who uh, was of humble assistance and maybe uh, a persistent questioner, but also that at the end of the day that uh, all of this happens with some compassion and allowance and uh, a sense that uh, we're all in this together. Yeah, that's really beautifully put. And I, I truly see that in you and, and truly reflect that in that sensibility that, you know, as much as that we all do individually or set ourselves on this path of service and sharing that, you know, we are, you know, are our part amongst it all. Dave, it's been a really, really uh, beautiful chat, and I thank you so much, not just on kind of, you know, sharing so much about the practice as a whole, but, you know, sharing more about the mantra, the kirtan, the practice, and, you know, the spirituality, the philosophy, but also the, you know, the neurology behind it, and, and opening and continually opening doors for so many of us to really find our way into, you know, appreciating the power of chanting and mantra so thank you so much and I, and I want to say on behalf of many people who, who I, you know every time I I fondly talk about you or we play your music in classes or at events you know I don't think I've yet met someone who hasn't had a warm fuzzy feeling about you or, or your music oh that's really sweet to hear um well it's a it's an honor and a privilege to be part of this conversation uh, with you and uh, with this beautiful community that, you know, that we have around us. And, and if it's continuing by other methods, it's still a community. It's still as meaningful and still as important as it ever was. Absolutely. For, for people who are looking to connect with you, Dave, to either reach out and have a conversation or uh, find out more or kind of listen into your music, where's the best places or resources that they can connect with you? 
right now. Well, I mean, uh, people, I, websites remain important. So my website is davestringer.com and that can direct you to my YouTube channel where I am now, since I can't be on the road, starting to post a lot more videos of both chanting and me speaking. Bandcamp uh, is a useful resource uh, for actually being able to listen to all my music. Right. Um, you can buy books of uh, music to the chants if you want to take some time in isolation to learn how to play a little better. I am teaching uh, online uh, Zoom classes uh, called Kirtan Flight School. I am uh, often giving concerts in a virtual way. And uh, yeah, so those places, YouTube, Bandcamp, my website, uh, my music is streaming on Spotify, Amazon, and uh, Apple Music. So all those things are there. I am going to create a little group project here. I've never really made any official videos for all of the Kirtan records that I've made. And what I'm going to do is engage in a mass act of video production. Um, I'm conceptualizing a way in which I'm going to get everybody to sing along Amazing. with these videos and uh, film themselves and edit some music videos of people chanting along to the Kirtan records. And uh, I'll probably re-release those records, but with the voices of everybody integrated into it. So I'm hoping I can get like the entire world of people that I've been encountering. Like everybody will have little guest spots on all these videos. Amazing. Yeah. Well, let me know when and how we can help. For sure. Yeah. Thank you for that invitation. And you probably can't help. And I'd love to see you in the video, Michael. Absolutely. I'm there. <laughs> Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Um, it's been a beautiful conversation. As always, for those of you guys listening, whether you're um, dedicated to the practice, teaching the practice, or just interested in finding more about it, you know, this podcast is really built as a way to expand the conversations, to dive deeper, and to connect with uh, teachers uh, and inspirational people all around the world who I really and truly believe are offering so much to this community as it continues to grow. So thank you, Dave, so much for joining us on the podcast today. Been a great pleasure and a great honor and privilege to be here. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, bud. And for those of you guys who want to stay connected, please do us a favor and just jump on to Apple and you know subscribe to the podcast, rate it, review it if you liked what you heard, and and spread the word. You know this community is built based around people. It is heart-centered, people-centered, and the more that we spread these conversations, the more the practice goes wider. Thank you guys so much, and we'll see you next time on Child's Pose. <laughs> Shanti, Makas Chituk Bhagavad Gita.